Krishna Krishna Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare Shri Hari Nam Prabhu Ki Jai Nam Sankirtan Ki Jai Om Agyanati Mirandasya Jnananjana salakaya Chakshurumiridamena tasmai Shri Gurave namaha Rajanulambita bujo kanakabhadato Sankirtanai kapitaro kamalaya takshu Vishwamboro dvijaboro Yugadharma palo Vande jagat priyakaro karunavotaro Vande Shri Krishna Chaitanya Nityananda Sahodito Gorodai Pushpabanto Chitra Sandoto Munodo Vande Ham Shri Ramakrishna Abhaya Charana Sako Sukodo Paramanando Sundaro Suvapriyo He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dina Bandhu Jagatpate Bhopisha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namostude Tapta Kanchana Gurangi Radhe Vrindavaneshwari Vishwabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Shri Guru Vaishnava Guru Parampara Ki Jai Srimad Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai Gaur Premanande morning.
So we were discussing from the tenth chapter of Bhagavad Gita. And this chapter, of course, is in the middle section of chapters seven through through twelve that uh, deal with the theology of the Gita. Here in these middle chapters, the Godhead introduces himself into the uh, discussion, into the equation. The Gita starts out very nicely by speaking about us in very flattering ways. It says we are amazing. And... uh, immutable and uh, undying and uh, so on and so forth. Um, And it's always nice to hear flattering things about oneself. Um, Of course, it, it does it in the context of speaking not too flatteringly about the false sense of self that gets in the way of our experiencing our truly amazing nature, if you will. So a uh, discussion on the nature of, of being and that with regard largely to ourselves is how the Gita begins and it's in a way preparing us in these early six chapters for the middle six chapters in which Bhagavan introduces himself largely uh, into the equation and in no uncertain terms he does mention himself er, here and there um, in the earlier chapters in the fourth chapter the the uh, concept of the avatar avatar tattva is discussed and this may be the first place in all of the eastern revelation that the concept of the avatar is um, brought to light. An interesting point, as an aside. <clears throat> but it is not till the middle six chapters, really, that uh, in no uncertain terms, Bhagawan introduces himself into the equation. He is the, the tat that we are the twam of tatvam asi, it is said in the Upanishads and from a Gaudiya perspective that can be translated that you are his. You belong to him. We are a derived entity. And so while we are wonderful and amazing and independent of matter not an emergent property of the brain, so on and so forth. Um, As extraordinary as that is, and as different and free uh, of an understanding of the self that that is from our present limited sense of self, however freely we are allowed to to be whatever we think we could be, we could never be all that the Gita says that we are by 
learning the limitations of thought itself hmm? and and transcending them. <coughs> um, <coughs> and the idea is that it's beautiful to be a derived entity. The moon is very beautiful in terms of its light at night. It, uh, it gives light to us by which we can see. It gives us eyes to see in the dark. That's very comforting. Hmm? And uh, it's very warm also. It arouses feelings, even romantic feelings. Um, and um, it's much appreciated by us. It makes the stars uh, almost disappear when appearing um, in its fullness. But at the same time, um, the moon, in all of its beauty, charm, um, and what it brings to us, uh, it... Uh, its power of light, warmth, and so forth, as I'm describing, is derived, as we know. Hmm? It's a reflected light. The sun reflects on it. And when the sun reflects on the moon, the moon becomes wonderful hmm? and nourishing to us hmm? in so many ways. There's a story of how, by bad association of one star, the moon was led to believe that it, that, that, that it's... Um, its identity as a reflection of the sun, its identity as a as a derived entity in terms of its power and glory, um, should be brought into question. Hmm? One little star, hmm? one thought in the moon, in the mind, the moon, the mind of the moon, the moon of the mind. The moon is related to the mind in Vedic uh, cosmology and so forth. So, the sky of the mind. So one thought, and and so it went. The story goes that the moon went independent. Wanted to be a free thinker, hmm? <laughs> and uh, it became cold and dark. Hmm? Hmm? It came cold and dark and. Not much appreciated in the long run, <clears throat> and so it resituated itself, if you will, as the story goes, um, as a uh, uh, a reflection in terms of its light of the moon and and uh, teaches us by this story that our own position. Hmm? Um, despite being a derived entity, if you will, that has a source that it's dependent upon, uh, is nonetheless most beautiful um, when understood as such, warm and um, <coughs> and bright. <coughs> warm and bright. And this is the reflective, if you will, influence of Bhagavan's Srup Shakti that Bhakti is constituted of, which is uh, very much the subject also of these middle six chapters. It has the quality of, of brightness, of light, of illumination, of knowledge, 
and of heat, if you will, um, but uh, the warmth of feeling. Hmm? It's samvit and hladini. Hmm? So that's, um, again, uh, uh, while Bhagavan is the subject of these middle six chapters, so too, and understandably, and unavoidably, is, um, is, is bhakti, uttam bhakti, hmm? nandul bhakti, uh, nirgun bhakti, hmm? bhakti that is of the nature of, of Bhagawan himself. Hmm? In one sense, I've said before that these middle six chapters, Krishna is speaking very um, boldly, if you will, about himself and bringing himself into the equation. And he certainly does so in this, this tenth chapter. Um, but in another sense, the book is really only about bhakti and in order for there to be bhakti, there has to be Bhagwan. Hmm? So Krishna talks about himself because uh, he's the perfect object of bhakti. Hmm? So if he's to talk about bhakti, secondarily, so to speak, or intertwined with that, has to be the mention of discussion of the underscoring of himself, his own position in relation to bhakti. I say that because I've heard before that sometimes people, new students to the Gita, they like the first six chapters, but when they come to hearing Krishna's very uh, strong statements about himself, they, um, they, they find it a little off-putting at first. But he has to talk about himself if he's going to talk about bhakti. Hmm? So the middle of six chapters about bhakti. And Bhagwan is the, is part of the knowledge of bhakti. We have a knowledge within bhakti. Love is is often say pregnant with, with a kind of essential knowledge. And so we call that sambandagyan, knowledge of relationship. So the knowledge of the nature, the form, the qualities, the leelas of the god, at all of which knowing about uh, fosters love for him within the jiva. So, <clears throat> these are the, this is the, the section of the Gita we find ourselves in. And in the 10th chapter, there is a very strong emphasis on the, the godhood of Krishna. Krishna is speaking about himself in different ways, making different statements as to his divinity. And um, so here he, he, he seeks to to, to to speak about it in practical ways, and um, the th- even that is somewhat theoretical here in this chapter. He'll he'll point to different powerful um, influences uh, within nature, and say that they are all representative of himself. Among bodies of water, I am the ocean. Of among immovable things, I am the Himalayas and. Uh, and so on and so forth. Um, And then, of course, in the next chapter, he'll show that to be the case. So they're kind of intertwined, 10 and 11. He's kind of coming coming home with uh, some real practical insights 
and uh, mystical um, revelation of the the, uh, the 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 truth behind what he's speaking when he says, "I am this, I am that, I am all these things," are uh, me in a representational sense. They are my um, uh, vibhutis, powerful manifestations of myself. And, and of course, we, when we when we meet these things, when we, when we come uh, in California in our ashram Audarya, we we live not far from the ocean, and and uh, we live at the same time in the forest and the mountains. So when you take the road to the to the ocean from Audarya, you have to go through the, a very windy road through the forest and big, big, big trees there. The redwoods are some of the biggest trees on the on earth, oldest trees. So it's very majestic. And um, suddenly you, uh, you come out of the trees and there's the ocean. It's very beautiful, very, um, very powerful feeling then to be standing before the vastness of the ocean. All of us have experiences like this, I think, in, in nature, where we're amazed at the uh, smallness of ourselves, if you will, in relation to some powerful manifestation of nature that seems vast and unlimited and unfathomable. Hmm? Often these types of experiences are thought by atheistic people to be the sum and substance of what theists are speaking about when they say they had the experience of God. From our perspective, however, this is just kind of a beginning idea to identify the vastness and the the powers of the natural world with a powerful um, (coughs) um, source, a kind of animism, is uh, is kind of the bottom of the ladder of the theistic ladder. Hmm? Um, so our experience then goes much uh, deeper than than this, but it includes this. And it's a good start in a way. Hmm? And the sacred text of the Bhagavatam starts in this way and it advises us to to think of the world as as God, hmm? the proverbial universal form, which is, of course, spoken about here, theoretically, in this chapter, and revealed in the next chapter. So it's a, it's a very profound um, um, explanation or assertion on the part of Bhagavan um, as to his divinity and how it is all-pervading and uh, and very awe-inspiring. So the, the, the majestic uh, Aishvarya of of the uh, the absolute is the subject, and interestingly and appropriately so, it is in this chapter and in the next chapter, chapter eleven as well, that we find um, and an, the emphasis to be on intimacy. So, in the midst of the chapter, this chapter is you know, quite a few verses, maybe forty some close to 50 verses. Um, 
42, 42 verses. And um, probably about 35 or 36 of them are all about his majesty. And four or five are about his intimacy. In the later next chapter, the 11th chapter, we find so much about his um, majesty showing himself to be the world to be inside of him if you will the all pervasive nature of the of, of the Godhead revealed in a mystic vision to Arjuna and just a couple of verses in there that speak about the the uh, intimacy the possibility of intimacy with uh, between Bhagawan and, and the Jiva wherein for example this mystic form in which Krishna shows uh, I'm God in a, in a majestic sense, the, everything is contained within me, is a form then that Arjuna finds interesting but not that appealing, even though he wanted to see it. What's talked about in the 10th chapter, he asks if he could see it in some way, hmm? more or less in the 11th chapter, and Krishna shows it. But Arjuna retreats right from that vision. Hmm? And we find the the glorification of his human-like form to be such that it is it is thought to to exceed the um, majestic form of the God in charm and sweetness and in possibility for with regard to loving. So, very small couple of verses only about the sweetness of Krishna's form, but it's really the center of the whole chapter. Hmm? The center of the chapter, 11th chapter, is this this madhurya, sweetness, and the greater balance of it, that sweetness is wrapped in a package of aishvarya, majesty. And so it is with this 10th chapter as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. At the... Uh, at the very end of the chapter, eight verses into the chapter, we find verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, which are uh, thought to be the, the four essential verses of the whole text. And we find one verse at the end of the chapter that corresponds with what is said in the uh, eighth verse. And... Um, that is an emphasis on majesty that gives rise to the possibility, properly understood, to the possibility of, of experiencing the absolute in intimacy. Mm-hmm. At the end of the chapter, Krishna says that Ekam jagat, that all of these powerful manifestations of nature that I've spoken about that I say are representative of me, hmm? he says, what, what, but anyway, what is the need of all of this? Hmm? The fact that the matter is that by, a, by only a part of myself, ekamsena, ekamsa, one fraction of myself, one angsa of myself, he's referring to what? The paramatma. Hmm? By one fraction of myself, or the whole world it comes in, into being. Hmm. So what to speak then of my position? Hmm? 
Krishna is saying they're what? Krishna's too? Bhagavan Swayam to cite the Bhagavatam. Hmm? That I, Krishna is the source of everything. And that is how he begins the Chatushloki or the four essential verses of um, the Gita found in this chapter. So we turn to those verses. Hmm? Verse 8. So what I'm saying here is that verse 8 through 11 and the last verse, last couple of verses of the chapter are really what the majesty <coughs> excuse me, described in the chapter is meant to bring us to. We there, there will be no madhurya, no sweetness without Aishvari, without um, um, some understanding of the majesty of the goddess. So these, these two are really in, inseparable. And it really does come out in the personhood of Krishna. He says, and we'll, we, as we'll see, he says in the eighth verse here, which is the beginning of the four essential verses, that, tell, that speak to us about... Krishna in Vrindavan, in his Brajalila, and the nature of the type of bhakti by which that experience of himself is afforded. That's why Vishwanachakvitakur has determined that these four verses are the essential verses of the Gita. He's saying the whole Gita is really pointing towards this idea. This is a very Gaudiya take, obviously, on the Bhagavad Gita, but, but it's well-reasoned, hmm? as we know. The Bhagavad Gita is a dissertation on, on Dharma, and it's taking place at Kurukshetra, and... and um, and according to the Bhagavads, uh, we, we find a very high um, theologically high description of the uh, uh, intimacy between Krishna and the gopis talked about at Kurukshetra. I think maybe Maharaj will speak a little bit about that um, in one of his discourses. Um, we call that intimacy prema dharma. So if there's going to be a discussion on dharma, it has to, it's to be comprehensive. It does have to touch at least on this. Salai pumsa paro dharma yato bhakti rosidhe hoitiki patiyatayatma samprasidhati. That bhakti is only about pleasing him. Ayatma supersedes. So it comes here in this section, and this is what Gaudiya Vaishnavism is, is about non dual bhakti, non dual devotion for the non dual absolute. It's a very interesting concept how there can be devotion within non duality, because devotion seems to imply an object of devotion and a devotee and the act of devotion and a duality thereby. So it's important to discuss and understand. It's important for us to understand what is this uh, kind of non-dual devotion hmm, that we might really be on the path and derive from it all that is to be derived because it's easy to to uh, misconstrue. Hmm? 
and um, be involved in a devotion that is that, that by appearance is one thing, but in reality is is really influenced by the modes of nature, and and thus not a nirguna, not non-dual, and not giving one the kind of uh, results that uh, that one would hope or that is talked about. <coughs> so, important points. And the, the, the text here, the uh, the chapter sloki begins with verse 8, and Krishna says what? Aham sarvasya prabhava. I am the source of everything. So it's a very proud, if you will, bold statement. I am the source of everything. Uh, so uh, Krishna is saying here uh, that if we look at it in light at the at the end of the chapter, as I mentioned, where he says, "All of this, the whole world is is but a, coming from but a spark of my splendor, coming from a, a partial manifestation of myself, the Paramatma, the Mahavishnu." Hmm? Um, I am Bhagawan, and I am, for that matter, Bhagawan plus, if you will. I am Swayam Bhagawan. Bhagawan, we mentioned last night the. Uh, the key verse from the Bhagavatam, Vadanti Tat Tattvavidas Tattvam Yadgyanam Advayam Brahmeti Paramatmeti Bhagavaniti Shabdite. Not ordinary people, but learned people who are Tattvavit, who have taken the time <coughs> to avail themselves to, the, to, to understand in detail the argument of the Eastern Revelation, a, a veritable discourse on the nature and possibilities of the subjective world, which whether we know it or not, we're all living in, even though we're identified as much as we are with the with the external objective world of things and whatnot. We nonetheless really live in the uh, subjective world. <clears throat> Unfortunately, we we often live in the kind of qualified subjective world of thoughts in relation to things hmm? rather than in experience of ourselves beyond the limits of thought or in thought not of things hmm? but of thought in relation to the possibilities in the subjective world. So, thinking about Krishna, for example, is a different thing than thinking about things, about matter. So, the subjective world proper, if you will, the world of consciousness proper, the super, Shidamarj, Pujapad Shidamarj uses the term super subjective world. The mental world is subjective but objective also because as again its thoughts are principally tied to the objective world we we try to move away from that of course in in the culture of bhakti hmm? and um, in in the thought world the world of mind mind stuff and so forth we we posit gods and goddesses it's often thought that that the hindus have have posited their psych- psychological realities uh, in, 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 into the heavens. 
right? So gods of rain, gods of creation, gods of destruction, and so on and so forth. And there's, there's a lot of truth to that. But of course, what we add to that from our perspective is that the, the world of mind, mind there's a, there, there is something called mind stuff. There is a category of matter that is psychic hmm? and relatively unexplored by the atomists and uh, <coughs> um, physicalists and so forth, naturalists of the world. Hmm? And um, still some in modern philosophy and science do think that maybe there is psychic matter. Maybe it has different rules, laws by which it works and so forth. Hmm? Form of category dualism, to use a modern term, where there are different categories of, of the one thing called matter. Hmm? So we agree with that. Most of those lines of thinking place consciousness and mind as emergent properties of the physical. We, of course, look at it the other way. The physical is an emergent property of the mind. Hmm? Um, but we agree that there, there are different categories of matter. And that second category, or the primary category of matter, if you want to look at it like that, mind, mind stuff, the psychic dimension, the anu, uh, what's the term? The um, antakarana, hmm? with its chitta, manas, buddhi, and ahankar. This psychic reality, yes, in that uh, there, there, there is a, this is the microcosm, this is the kind of, the, hmm, I want to say, the mental world, the mind stuff is a macrocosmic. You have a causal reality, a, 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 a macrocosmic reality, and a microcosmic <coughs> reality. The physical reality, microcosmic, the, the mental macrocosmic. And that's where the gods, if you will, of the Hindus reside. They are psychological projections in a sense, but um, not in the way in which when we talk about it in the modern world, we make out thoughts to be something that are unreal. Hmm? Unreal, yes, they are. That's true in another enduring sense when reality is said to be that which endures. Hmm? In that sense, the physical world is not real and the mental world is not real. But um, but we do acknowledge a, a, a psychic dimension of matter and, and this corresponds with our psychology, if you will, our, our own individual um, psychological makeup. So yeah, we have... Uh, the creative power, the destructive power, and so on and so forth, and they are personified. They are personified and correspond with our thinking, but uh, that doesn't mean that they don't exist. I want to say, I want to, uh, it's a it's a question of exploring the subtle, the idea, the concept of subtle or psychic uh, matter. <clears throat> so. The physical matter comes from the psychic matter, and and both coming from <clears throat> from Brahman, from the Godhead, who is known differently in by in, in different faces or different phases of itself, 
by different types of transcendentalists who lend themselves to um, a acquaintance with the Eastern Revelation. They know the Absolute as Brahman, as Paramatma, as Bhagawan, as the verse from the Bhagavatam says. They know the Absolute, the ultimate reality to be non-dual being, non-dual knowing, and non-dual loving. Hmm? Being, knowing, and loving. This is um, reality. I think it would be hard to argue with that, that our reality is constituted of being, knowing, and loving, if you explore these terms uh, fully. Hmm? It uh, is very much what our existence is about. We be, we know that we be, and we know and we be or we exist for a purpose, and the purpose is is to love. Hmm? So, in the Godhead, therefore, there is being, there is knowing, and there is loving, loving, Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagawan. The being is still. Hmm? The knowing involves some movement. Hmm? Because in the knowing, hmm, there is the influence of Shakti. In Brahman, there's no influence of Shakti. In Paramatma, there is the Shaktis of Maya and Jiva. Hmm? So we find from the stillness of Brahman, of being, the knowing in Paramatma, some movement. Movement in relation to Maya and the Jiva is the movement of witnessing, the movement of reflection. It's very limited. Hmm? To reflect upon, to witness, to sanction. (coughs) This is as much as the Absolute moves in conjunction with or in relation to its shaktis, Maya Shakti and Jeev Shakti. And then Bhagwan, where the, the what's con- thought to be truly the inconceivable Shakti, the Srup Shakti, is active. And there we find more movement, right? There we find qualities, Leelas, um, the Vilas, hmm? the uh, movement of, of, of love of Narayan, Narayana. So it means, it's a word, of course, that means the shelter of all things. So you could take it in a generic uh, cross-cultural uh, sense and say, the Hindus say that God is the shelter of all things, all things resting in him. Hmm? Um, that's true, to look at it uh, philosophically and so forth. But at the same time, the sacred texts of the Hindus, the Eastern Revelation has also uh, uh, posited a, a, a form that is not iron, with qualities and movement, leelas and so forth. We don't, in specificity that is. Um, and um, properly understood, these qualities, they uh, understood and heard that is about from proper sources, they, they, they naturally give rise to, to loving. Their udipanas, stimulants for loving. 
you hear about him, he's like this. Hmm? And uh, in him all contradictions are resolved. He has so many qualities. Rupa Goswami, for example, speaking about Krishna, has enumerated 64 qualities. Of them, there are four that are possessed only by Narayan, not by the devas, not by the devas who, who are empowered by Krishna, for example, as Brahma or Shiva, hmm? only in Narayan, and, of course, in Krishna, and Krishna has more. Hmm? Um, uh, hearing about these qualities, hearing about the descriptions of the form of Narayan, his pastimes and so forth, these are empowered type of uh, explanations that speak about something that transcends the limits of the explanation, but the explanations themselves are um, empowered, if you will. So they're very useful to meditate upon. They shouldn't be dismissed as culturally uh, bound descriptions of a godhead that transcends cultural limitations, but rather to be the most definitive or detailed explanation of the Godhead as a transpersonal person hmm, that's, that's known to us. Hmm. This is a very objective. Hmm. The, the details of a transpersonal personality hmm, of, of Godhead are, are limited as we find them in other traditions, comparatively. Um, so they speak are arguably about a very deep uh, penetration into the nature and experience of the personhood of, of the Godhead that, that defies these, these very you know, facile ideas of the person of God that atheists wonder about. What is he, sitting on a cloud somewhere or something? It, um, a, a ground of philosophy and tattva that this, this form arises out of, and so forth. So, they are very powerful descriptions. Rupa Goswami's descriptions of the of the of the qualities of Krishna are very um, useful for us to to read about, to study. Hmm? Um, they <coughs> have the power to stimulate within us. Loving him, just like if you hear about any great personality, you, you, you might find them attractive. Hmm? So it is with the descriptions of Krishna. With regard to that, and he, how he's speaking about himself here, Aham Sarvasya Prabhu, I am the source of everything. He's saying, I'm the source of Brahman, Paramatma, Bhagavan, I'm Swayam Bhagavan himself. I said that of Krishna's 64 qualities, Narayan has up to 60 of them, four of them that he alone shares with Krishna, not with anybody else. They're interesting qualities. Hmm? Narayan has the quality of, uh, of being possessed of inconceivable potency. This refers to his sarup shakti, by which the leela is conducted and so forth. Hmm? And Narayan has the quality of being, uh, of pervading the world. Hmm? Himself, in the form of his Purusha avatars, the Mahavishnu, the uh, Garbodakshai Vishnu, the Shirodakshai Vishnu, he's pervading causally, 
macrocosmically and microcosmically, entering in the heart and to every atom, microcosmically, macrocosmically, in terms of, <coughs> excuse me, entering each universe and causally, as the Mahavishnu, reflecting on nature, on the nature of nature and bringing it to life, so to speak. In this way, Narayan is thought to be all-pervasive. Sometimes the world is described, Jagadavyaktamurtina, well, in the Gita, the world is my form. Hmm? Um, so he has inconceivable powers. His form is all-pervading. He is very kind to his enemies, Narayan. Hmm? It's one of his, his qualities. He's uh, also uh, what attractive to the to the to, to those who, who are self satisfied the atmaramas. Did I miss one? There are five actually. Hmm? Inconceivable powers, all pervading form, kind hmm? kind to enemies, uh, attractive to the atmaramas, and there's another one. Uh, you know, he possesses these. Krishna also possesses them. But in the idea here of his being Swam Bhagavan, in other words, Bhagavan plus, so to speak, uh, that we see from the Leelas and the authoritative descriptions of the mystics, that he possesses these qualities um, in a way that exceeds the extent to which Narayana possesses them. Hmm? For example, Narayan is kind to his enemies. So he, 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 he is such. But we don't find that Narayan or any of his avatars, upon the leelas in which they're described as slaying the demons and so forth, that, that the kindness shows up in the form of giving them mukti, what to speak of bhakti. But we find this in Krishna. This is a speciality of Krishna. When Krishna slays the demons, they get mukti. And in some cases, for example... The case singled out by the learned Uddhava, the case of Putana, she was given bhakti, Vatsalya bhakti. He says, Stana Estitash, what else what is that verse? Um, he's, anyways, Uddhava says, Goodness. Hmm? Aho bhakti. <coughs> no. Aho bhakti-yam. Aho bhakti-yam. Stanakala kutam. Oh, yeah. Yeah, how extraordinary is this Krishna that the the, the sister of Baka, hmm, Putana, that she had such an insidious uh, plan in mind uh, by smearing her breast with poison and thinking to give it to the infinite infant infant Krishna and bring about his demise, but upon suckling her breast, uh, she met her own demise in terms of being a Putana, being a witch, being diabolical, and attained a position of eternal motherhood for Krishna in the outskirts of Golok. Of Golok. So Uddhava was very smart, wise, Krishna's advisor in, in Dwarka, and he thought, hmm, who in their right mind would take shelter of anyone else? Hmm? Narayan is kind to his enemies, but he's not this kind. Hmm? He's not that kind. 
just seeing Putin addressed like a devotee, disguised as a devotee, he overlooked hmm, her intentions. Intentions were completely overlooked. Hmm. He took her on appearance only. This is very extraordinary. <laughs> uh, I'm not recommending that you just dress like a devotee and, and don't act like one, but, but it, it's better than nothing at all. <laughs> Uh, maybe that's what must some of us can only do: <laughs> wear tilak, neck beads, and stand in front of the deity and move around and be be seen, something like that, hmm? by Krishna. Hmm. Uh, so uh, his quality of being kind uh, to the enemies uh, exceeds in in form the expression of the same on the part of Narayan. His 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 um, quality of being um, having an all pervasive form exceeds that of Narayan. We find that in the Brahma Vimohan Lila, for example, where Krishna shows himself to be the source of innumerable Narayans and from whom innumerable worlds are coming and so forth. Hmm? So, Atmaram also another quality, right? That uh, that. The self-satisfied persons, like the Kumaras, they were became attracted to Narayan. But we find that Narayan in Bhagavatam is attracted to Krishna. So in various ways, the Goswamis have pointed out that the the extraordinary qualities of Narayan that in one sense differentiate him from everyone else and make him Bhagawan are found in Krishna, but in excess and to a higher degree. And... For this reason, among others, he is distinguished with the term Swayam Bhagavan. Swayam, not only Bhagavan, but Swayam Bhagavan. This is what he's saying about himself here. I am the source of, of everything. Amongst my moments of being, of knowing and loving, loving is, of course, the most complete because we could have, a, we could have an unknowing existence, but we can't have a knowing that that doesn't exist. We could have a knowing existence, but it might not be a loving existence, but we cannot have a loving that doesn't have knowing and existing included within it. So the loving aspect of the Absolute, this Bhagavan idea that corresponds with Bhakti, is the full face of the Absolute. And Krishna is saying, I'm more full than that because I am more full hmm, uh, than the general idea of Bhagavan, which, which... in, evokes love in majesty, hmm? love in, in in awe and in reverence, and creates by it a union with Godhead that at the same time maintains a, a distinction hmm? between myself, the devotee, and the object of love. But in Krishna, Krishna in Vrindavan. Hmm? This Krishna, whose voice our charges are hearing in this section of the Gita, this any any difference, if you will, <coughs> not any difference, but uh, the, the difference be- that, that between the worshiper and the object of worship and majestic love is bridged. Hmm? Love is uh, very much a a a a, a union. Hmm? As much as it is a, um, a, a a diversity, and I think it comes out here as Krishna proceeds 
in this verse, from saying, Aham Sarvasya Prabhavo Matasavaram Prabhartate. He says, I'm the source of everything. Then he says, everything comes from me. It seems redundant, maybe for emphasis. Say it in two different ways. But I think there's more to be said than that from this second line of the verse. Aham Sarvasya Prabhavo Matasavaram Prabhartate. First, I'm the source of everything. I'm the source of Bhagwan. What to speak of Paramatma and Brahman, these three faces of the Absolute, hmm? that, is, that, is, that is described in the Bhagavatam as being ultimate non-dual reality. Hmm? So I am the source of reality. It's, uh, of course, Krishna is the, the, the non-uncaused cause. People like to think in a, in a very simplistic way that if, if God created the world, caused the world, who caused God? Hmm? But it, it, it's it's a kind of a silly argument because the the, the premise that here that we begin with is that all causes do not have to have a cause. There may be if we if we conclude that the world has a cause by whatever type of scientific uh, examination of it um, we 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 are involved in that does not necessarily mean that its cause has a cause. That cause has to be examined also. Hmm? And this is the subject, of course, of the sacred texts when I say of the East. They are an exploration of the nature of the subjective world, the nature of consciousness, and so forth. Here we find, then, an explanation of an uncaused cause. It's very interesting. I like to say, of course, that if we were to be pressed and asked, did you say Krishna is the cause of the world? What is the cause of Krishna? We would have a reply beyond saying, Oh, he has no cause. He's the anadiradirgobindasarvakaranakaranam, the cause of all causes. We could say what's really referred to here in the second line, hmm, that, oh, the cause of Krishna, that is Radha. Hmm? What is the cause of Radha? That is Krishna. Hmm? Uh, kind of a checkmate there, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Uh, <coughs> so what does it mean? It means here that he says, I'm the source of everything. Everything comes from me. So how does everything come from him? Hmm? That is Shakti... What is it? Shakti Parinam Vad. By Shakti. By a transformation of his Shaktis. Hmm? The world proceeds. And it proceeds, the world, even though it's constituted of the Maya Shakti and the Jiva Shakti, it actually proceeds from the Antaranga Shakti, from the Srupa Shakti of Krishna. Hmm? This is an interesting topic. Hmm? It means to say that the love of Radha and Krishna is the source of the world. Hmm? What happens in their Leela has ripple effects <laughs> in our world. Hmm? To trace all that out, of course, uh, that, that's what we call Krishna consciousness. It's, uh, it's a great, uh, great mystery. <clears throat> but one of the things that's being said in, in these first two lines <clears throat> of this verse, of course, are that we should have some assurance that things are all right, that there is a cause, there is, a, there is meaning to everything. Things happen for a reason. <clears throat> and they're not always what they appear to be. <clears throat> 
by looking at the small picture. By looking at the small picture in our lives, our lives will be disconcerting. By looking at the bigger picture, as described here, there's hope at least hmm, that our life can be free from such. Hmm. If there is no bigger picture, then you're going to have a disconcerting life, that's for sure. If there is a bigger picture, but you're only looking at part of it, you know, there's a famous story of the man. <clears throat> there was a man who had a horse. You know the story? Had a beautiful white horse. It was very attractive. And everybody wanted to buy the horse. And there was no limit to the offers that the poor man had. But he realized, I have a valuable horse everybody wants to buy, so I'm going to keep the horse. But one day, <coughs> the horse disappeared. Stolen, it was thought. And then everybody said, oh, what a fool you are, just see. You could have had so much money for the horse, but you held on to the horse, and now the horse is gone. And now you have nothing. You're such a fool. Hmm? He said, well, we'll see. And so after a few days, the horse came back with a dozen other wild horses hmm? and ran into the corral. And so everybody said, well, I guess you were really lucky after all. We, we thought you had lost out on everything, and now you've got a dozen horses. And he said, well, yeah, we'll see how lucky I am. We'll see how bad it is. We'll see how good it is. And, of course, then what happened was his son was taking care of the horses, and one of the horses kicked him and broke both of his legs. And so they said, oh, you're so unfortunate that to see your son's legs are broken, and, and certainly your son is more dear to you than your horses, and... Now your horses have caused this problem and so forth. So he said, well, we'll see how bad it is. And then it turned out that the country went to war and all the young boys were drafted to go into the army. But his son couldn't go because he had two broken legs. And all the neighbors' sons were killed in the war. And only only his son was spared, so to speak. And so they thought, oh, you're so lucky. And of course he said, see, and I don't think the story really has an end. <laughs> uh, but the, 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 the import is that the big, there's a bigger picture going on here. And just be patient. And this is Krishna's talking about. If you understand what Krishna's saying here, you can relax. Hmm? There's somebody in charge. <laughs> it's okay. You know it's not you. Hmm? That, you've been trying that, and that's, that's not working. I mean, interpreting events, cause the cause and so forth, uh, without seeing the whole picture. And so it's somewhat disconcerting. Krishna's trying to bring us into a bigger picture here. I've said before that when I was young, as a young boy in, in the sixth grade, I don't know how old you are, like five, ten or something like that, eight or ten? Eleven. At eleven years old, I had a girlfriend. Her name was Cindy. And um, so... You know, in those days, it didn't mean what it does today. <laughs> in those days, we, were, we lived in, the, in cold weather in Chicago, which is quite a haven for Polish people in the United States, as it turns out. <clears throat> and so they used to make hearts on the window of the bus, you know, so-and-so, love so-and-so, with an arrow through the heart. It was very kind of innocent. And today, things are changing. I heard, I heard the other day that, that young ladies, girls may be appropriate to refer to at that age, reach puberty at earlier ages, is it, than they, than they did previously. Hmm? This is an important point to consider because it speaks to us about the ever-changing nature of the world and the nature of material knowledge. Hmm? What people were like 500 years ago, human beings, 
is very different than what human beings are like now, biologically, psychologically, and so on. So therefore, <coughs> the point being that there's room, relatively speaking, with regard to the relative knowledge of the world, for there to be um, new truths, if you will, which will be half-truths, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole truth of them is something that's uh, it's, it's evolving and so forth. So there's, um, <clears throat> even with regard to our sages speaking about the nature of the world hmm, from the past and so forth, the point I'm making is that the world changes. Hmm? Really it does. Biologically we change. Psychologically we change. So there are, there, there's a, a, a need for redrawing the map, for example, the moral map, the, the ethical map at times all of which is, uh, is somewhat relative and, from our perspective, relative to our spiritual progress. We should have a moral map, an ethical map, and so forth. <clears throat> um, but ultimately, our map, <coughs> or our guideline, rests in what is favorable for bhakti, that is morally acceptable. What is unfavorable for bhakti, that's morally uh, unacceptable. So, at any rate, there's a bigger picture. Krishna's trying to bring us into the bigger picture here, that we might get some relief. Hmm? Um, And so he says, I am the source of everything, and everything comes from me. When he says everything comes from me, arguably he's speaking about now his Shakti is being introduced into the picture. Hmm? By which things come from him. It is by the energy, the shakti of a person, by which they do things, they accomplish things, and by which they are known more fully as well. We know about a person more than by their, let's say, their picture, their form. Uh, We know more about them by what they do. If they are a musician or an author or an athlete, or whatever may be the case, and by their power... They do things. Things, this is another point, of course, very relevant. Everything has a power. In order to be, you have to have power. Hmm? Power is inherent in being, and it, by that power, that being expresses itself, make itself makes itself known. Hmm? So this is, of course, now we're speaking about this, this metaphysic of Gaudi Vaishnavism, Bed bed, chintya bed bed, tattva. That the non-dual reality hmm, is possessed of power, hmm, of shakti, by which it 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 does things, it accomplishes things, <coughs> magical things, inconceivably. Hmm. It moves, shakes, and. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's movement ultimately under the influence or by the force of its Swarup Shakti is the, the, the movement that we know to be love. Love is, a, is, is both static and dynamic at the same time. In other words, as I've often said, we cannot rest in this world until we find love. So there's... When we find it, we rest. Ah, and there's, a, there's some relief. But then 
it has a movement also, an orbit of its own, the love. And now we start moving within the context of loving. It's a different type of movement. It's well, it works, but it, it's dynamic. It has, it has, it has within it. It has, it has loving and its opposite hate. They're both resolved, isn't it? There's lovers, not hate maybe, but argument. Hmm? Right? Lovers argue with one another. They become mad at one another. Don't get in the middle of that. Hmm? Is, the, is the idea. That's another form of love, another expression of love. These are contradictory. What, ostensibly what is love and what is, what is arguing and fighting is uh, they're, they're opposites, but they're both found in love. So love is, a, is dynamic and static at the same time. It's a stillness that gives us relief from a certain type of movement that we're haunted by without, with, because of a lack of love, and being filled with love, then we're, we're set into another orbit hmm? uh, uh, orchestrated by the love itself. This, in the theological context, of course, is what we're talking about when we talk about the Leela of Bhagavan. The Leela of Bhagavan is, is the one becoming two. So, Radha Krishna Pranai, Bhikriti Ladini Shakti Rasmad. Hmm? The transformation of Krishna's love... Hmm? That is Radha. <coughs> and the one becomes two. Two, two, two bodies, one, one soul, something like that. The one becoming two. This is, this is the same idea as Eko, Bahu, Sham. Hmm? That the Mahavishnu becomes many. It's a, a kind of on a boss <laughs> of that. The one shadow of that. The one becomes two and there's Leela. Hmm? In other words, the nature of the non-dual absolute and particularly in its fullest expression in the form of Krishna who's speaking about himself here as Swayam Bhagavan is that that absolute is, is of the nature of loving. One philosopher put it once and I liked it that the consciousness of consciousness in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, is love. Hmm? The consciousness of consciousness. So, this is a big subject. I've talked about it before. Gaudiya Vaishnavism is really very much centered on the possibilities of the subjective world. Hmm? And it doesn't stop by any means in distinguishing the subjective from the objective world, which is a huge thing to do, to, to distinguish Atma from the self from matter, from both psychic and physical matter. Many traditions are focused on this and they end there. And it's a huge thing. But that in itself, from the perspective of the Gita, is, is only a sattvic perspective. Not even a transcendental perspective. A sattvic perspective. That there's a difference between matter and consciousness. And I'm of the nature of consciousness. Hmm? But that I could be in relation to the source of consciousness as Brahman in an undifferentiated sense, in, in relation to Paramatma in a witnessing sense of experiencing the, the beatific vision or in a playful sense and in the full sense of loving in relation to Bhagawan. This is all a, 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 a huge development 
in discussion of the nature and possibility of consciousness in the subjective world, a huge extension from the mere distinguishing of matter from consciousness that some traditions, as good as they are, end in, so to speak. Hmm? So here Krishna begins to speak about his shakti, by which everything proceeds from him, the world as we know it. Hmm? The world of our of ourself as an atma and a unit of subjectivity and the objective world. Hmm? But that movement, hmm, as I say, it has its beginnings in the super-subjective world where the shakti of Bhagavan is more like him than different. We say that the shaktis of Bhagavan are one with him and different from him. So the maya shakti is more different than it is one. The jiva shakti is one and different hmm? in its potential. It is of a nature that it lends itself to nurture. It can be nurtured in such a way by the maya shakti that it's more different than one in that condition. Hmm? Identified with matter, which is more different than one from Bhagawan. Or it can be nurtured in another way. It has a nature that lends itself to nurture and it can be nurtured by the material energy and be, well, suffering from malnutrition. Hmm? Or it can be nurtured by bhakti. Hmm? This, is, this is the whole meaning of tatasta, tatasta shakti, word used to describe the jiva. That it, that it, that it has a nature that it can only be properly understood when we take into consideration the fact that it lends itself to nurture. Hmm? And it's going to be nurtured either by the maya shakti or by the sarup shakti, either by the material influence or by the spiritual influence. Hmm? And when it's influenced, nourished by the spiritual influence, then it becomes more one than different hmm? as a shakti. And the sarup shakti, which is that spiritual nourishing influence, that is more one than different much more one than different. Hmm? And the person of Radha, therefore, is one with Krishna. They are one person in two bodies. Hmm? What does he say in Chaitanya Charitamrita? Mahabhava, Rasaraj, Duyekarup. These two components, Mahabhava and Rasaraj, the object of love, Rasaraj, and Mahabhava, the, the supreme form of love, hmm? these two, of course, the idea is, in Chaitanya, they become one. They are one. They are one. Hmm? But it takes Chaitanya Lila to explain that point to us. And it's done through the personification of that unity <coughs> in the person of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Gora Krishna, and an entire Lila to explain really this point. Hmm? The one becomes two, and there's the interplay of love that is at the heart of consciousness being what it is. And this interaction in Leela between Bhagawan and his primal Shakti, as I said in many times, I've said, there's a little Radha in every devotee, a little Ladini Shakti in every devotee. This is what makes them a devotee. Some knowing and some, some loving. Hmm? So, because the Absolute, Radha and Krishna and the entourage, all the devotees of Krishna interacting, hmm? 
constitute a, a, an absolute non-dual consciousness that is of the nature of loving, therefore, the point is, therefore there is a world hmm, also, a material world. Therefore, there are jivas. And there's, there's reason for it. This is an interesting point. Hmm? Why is there a world? <coughs> hmm? Use another example. If, there, if we compare the absolute to a fire, hmm, then there must be heat and light. Heat and light, in this analogy, would be the Sarup Shakti. The Sarup Shakti of Bhagavan has light. It's luminous. Samvit. Hmm? And it has heat. Ladini, feeling. Hmm? And the fire also has sparks. So, the sparks are the fire, but they're not the fire. You can't cook with a spark. You can't heat yourself with a spark. But they're nothing but fire at the same time. So that is ourselves, the Jeev Shakti. We have Surup Shakti. We have the fire as Bhagavan. He has a Shakti, heat and light, a power, hmm? by which he is what he is in one sense. Hmm? And there are sparks, ourselves. And there is what else? Smoke, smoke. Smoke is dark. How can, smoke, how can darkness be, come from light? <laughs> Just start a fire and you'll know. It happens. It's inconceivable, but it's, it's a fact. There's darkness and obscuration hmm? coming from light. Hmm? So, the Maya Shakti, it obscures. Hmm? Its influence causes ignorance compared to darkness and so forth. Hmm? Uh, but still, further, again, because the absolute is loving, because it is an interaction between its heat and the fire and the heat and the light, that's very hard to distinguish from one another, but we can nonetheless. We have to be able to distinguish between Bhagawan and his primary Shakti in some way, in order for that absolute to be loving by nature. If there's, if there's non-distinction at all, then there's no loving. No possibility of loving. Absolute non-distinction. And there's absolute non-distinction, no difference. <coughs> there's no movement. Hmm? Hmm? So why should there even be a world? Hmm? Why should there even be a Maya Shakti or a Jiva Shakti? Hmm? or even in, as the Advaitans would think, even an illusion of it. But if the Absolute is constituted of, 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 or about, I should say, loving, then if it is about loving and the, and the pinnacle of that love is the exchange between Radha and Krishna, then all less complex forms of love must be included within the Absolute, one of which which stands out to us in this world, of course, is compassion. That seems very important to us, hmm? for good reason. Hmm? But there's no place for it in Radha and Krishna's Leela. Hmm? Not even in, in Vaikuntha. Hmm? It is said in Chaitanya Charitamrita that Narayan wants gets a feeling every now and then, I would like to give sarupya, salokya, shasti, samipya, these types of mukti to somebody, but there's nobody to give it to here. Hmm? What to do? So, 
There's another world to make it possible. Hmm? And the type of jiva who, in, in relation to whom Bhagavan can show compassion, without which, how can he be Rasaraj? How can he be the full face of love? Hmm? If this is absent in him, lacking in him. <coughs> hmm? So because he is, as he's describing himself here, Rasaraj, hmm? therefore, there's reason, there's reason for, from the way to point of view, there's no reason for a world whatsoever. It doesn't make any sense. There's no reason. Hmm? Hmm? From our point of view, there's some, some justification for it, some reason for it. Hmm? And in no small measure it is Krishna, Rasaraj, who shows compassion. In the form of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, how has he been described by Rupa Goswami? Mahabadanaya, Namo Mahabadanaya. Hmm? Such extraordinary measure of compassion in the gift of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And that gift is what is being talked about here in the third line of this verse, the opportunity or that which naturally arises out of the sambandha that he's giving here, properly understood. The sambandha is knowledge of relationships. So knowledge of the nature of Bhagawan is part of that. He's speaking about himself in such a way to say, I am, in me, all possibilities of love exist. Hmm? Not just reverential love, but love and intimacy also exists in relation to me and to me alone. We said there are 60 qualities that Rupa Goswami cites that Krishna has, 60 of which Narayan has. Five of those nobody else has, only Narayan and Krishna. But then he doesn't stop there, of course. He goes on to say what? And Krishna has four qualities that even Narayan doesn't have. Hmm? Rupa Madhurja, Venu Madhurja, Lila Madhurya, Prema Madhurya, 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 Madhurya. We're talking about Aishvari and Madhurya. It's a very interesting combination. They have to go together. To know that Krishna is the source of everything kind of backs us up a little bit. Hmm? But it also gives us the prospect of worshipping in such a way in which there can be no limitations to the measure or the extent of our worship. Hmm? Krishna promised in the Gita that as people approach me, I will reciprocate accordingly. And some people took him up on that hmm? and wanted to test him. Okay, so you've said that. As you approach, as you are approached with whatever sentiment, you will reciprocate accordingly. Hmm? And gopis... They are the ones who took this up. And what happened? Hmm? He said, okay, you win. I, 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 I'm wrong. I cannot reciprocate for the measure of your love. But at least I'm the person in which that love can be expressed. Hmm? And when it is, that full measure of love, I, I surrender myself. Hmm? I'm purchased by that. That love itself... It, is, is, is its own uh, reward. This is a verse of the Gita, 4th chapter, 11th verse, said to be describing Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, of course, obviously properly understood. Hmm? When Krishna sees the measure of the gopi's love, he knows it, 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 it is, exceeds his own experience. Therefore, he himself becomes a worshiper of that. He himself seeks to experience that. Hmm? 
This is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So, <coughs> so Krishna speaking about himself. I all possibilities of love exist within me. This is means again Madhurya, 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 Madhurya. He has sweet form, very charming. He's surrounded by not Lakshmi, but Lakshmi Sahasra Satasambrama. Not only Lakshmi, but thousands of Lakshmis. Not only thousands of Lakshmis, but Lakshmi Satasambrama. Sambrama means that they're endowed with a certain type of disposition hmm? that you don't find in Lakshmi, hmm? of Vaikuntha, Narayan's consort. Hmm? The nature of their, their giving hmm? is it makes Lakshmi desirous of experiencing that. For that reason, she's said to have taken up residence as, a, as an aesthetic in Vrindavan, that she might, through her austerities, living in the forest of Vrindavan, get the opportunity to enter the rasa dance with Krishna. This is, this is Lila Madhurya, rasa dance. Hmm? Hmm. The Prema Madhurya, the love of gopis and gopas, gopis in particular, she wanted to experience this, but it was not possible for her. Hmm? Krishna said to appear there and said, what are you doing here, Lakshmi, without your you know, ornaments and everything like this, eating only roots, and things that fall from the trees without any royal preparations cooked in ghee and so forth. She said, I'm here. I wanted to experience the, 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 what you experience with the gopis. Hmm? She, she, he said, well, I thought you were chased in Orion. Oh, you are in Orion. I'm not on chase. Don't say that. Hmm? He said, that may be, but the way to get here is not like what you're doing. That's not the way to get here. You have to first give up your husband, Narayan, then you have to marry somebody else, Gopa. Then you have to give him up hmm? and meet with me. She said, that is impossible for my ego. That's, I'm Lakshmi. That's, that's not possible. This is a very, that's a very special path. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu giving that opportunity to the world. He's saying here that what? Knowing him to be the source of everything, in whom all possibilities of love can be expressed, in relation to whom? And the Brajlila's example that I said the other day, three centers. He is the son of Yashoda. He is a cowherd. He is the lover of Radha. Hmm? This is Vatsalya, Sakya, Madhurya. These are the three centers of the Bhagavatam. There's Dasya Bhakti also in Golok, but it's tinged with Sakya also. <coughs> These are the three, three identities of Krishna. Hmm? All, all Madhurya. And romantic love is Madhurya, Madhurya, if you will. He's saying, knowing this, what I'm saying about me, knowing me to be the source of everything, knowing me to be in whom all possibilities of love exist. Knowing that, you have a new approach that becomes available to you that's not available in relation to Narayan and a majestic conception of the Godhead. Earlier in the chapter, Krishna says, I'm unborn like Narayan, but I'm also born unlike Narayan. I am hmm? motherless like, like Narayan, but I have a mother unlike Narayan. I'm, see, I'm better. I'm both things. Hmm? He says like this, this is Krishna. Hmm? So the implication is that this kind of sambandagyan, that Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, hmm? 
the password, Jiva Goswami says, for unlocking the, the, the philosophy of the Bhagavatam. Hmm? Having this in place, having this in, in your hand, hmm? then you have access to the way. Hmm? Now he describes that. What does he say? Iti matva bhajantemam buddha bhava samambita. Knowing these things, matva, knowing these things, understanding what's being said here, the implications of this. Hmm? One now has a very essential ingredient, element in place for ananya bhakti or unalloyed love. Knowing the, the center, knowing the, all the, 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 that which the, the taker, hmm? where, where everything can be given and it can be digested hmm? and redistributed hmm? like the root of the tree or the stomach of the body. Hmm? This is Krishna's position. In other words, to love unconditionally hmm, or without limitation, one has to find an object in which the love can be reposed that has no limits for taking. When Gopukumar went to Vaikuntha hmm, in the pursuit of Sakyabhav and he saw an Orion and he said, Hey, Gopal! They beat him with sticks in Vaikuntha. No, you can't talk like that around here. You can't speak like that. Hmm? That is Narayan. Hmm? Narayan called him up. Hey, come on, anyway. And then tried to show him his, his Gopal side. Hmm? <laughs> like he shows in Vaikuntha on Janamastami. Hmm? But it, even that was not sufficient for Gopakumar. Narada had to counsel him. As a Siksha Guru, you, you have to go further. Go to Ayodhya, go to Dwaraka, go to Braj. There you'll find your Gopal. Hmm? Krishna says, knowing about me, what I'm sa- what the implications of what I'm saying here, that I am Swayam Bhagavan, you have in place this important thing. Two things have to be there. You have to have the object of love that can take unlimitedly, and then you have to give without reservation. Hmm? So that is the meaning. Iti matva, understanding this, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, now you have that element in place. Then Buddha Bhava Samanbhita. Samanbhita means, it means filled, really, hmm, completely filled with, 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 with wise love. And Samanbhita also means it's like connection. So it also implies the whole idea of Rag Bhakti, hmm, that you have to make connection with somebody who loves in that way. Hmm? One of Krishna's associates, like the gopikas, gopas, hmm? through the guru parampara, this idea. And again, this is the influence of Sarup Shakti. Buddha bhava means like it has like heat and light. It has light, Buddha. It it some bit a kind of knowing, knowing, I am a handmaiden. Hmm? This kind of knowing, for example, and a kind of feeling that corresponds with that. The heat. Heat and light. Light, luminous, knowing, heat, feeling. Buddha Bhava Samambita. Those who know this, they worship me like this. That means they worship me with non-dual bhakti. Hmm? Their bhakti is not mixed with the gunas, not mixed with sattva guna. That I'm doing bhakti to get something else. Hmm? Anytime you do with bhakti, to get something else? Like you do bhakti to get free from the bhakti? 
Let me hear up and do the service so I can do nothing. Hmm? You're not doing Nirguna Bhakti. No. Hmm? It's not like that. Hmm? You have to understand. As we explained, this Rupa Shakti, this is non-different than Krishna. Hmm? One indifferent, but more one than different. Hmm? And that Surup Shakti, Bhakti is constituted of that Surup Shakti. In the beginning, you will think, I am doing Bhakti. Hmm? But when you progress, you realize, Bhakti is doing me. Hmm? Everything is okay. We might think, everything is okay, there's no problems. I only have to do Bhakti. Ugh, that's a problem. Hmm? Everything's okay. Krishna's in charge. Now, but I just now have to do bhakti. Oh, that's hard. Hmm? It may appear as such, but properly understood, you can relax. Bhakti is doing you. Hmm? When the emotive component of bhakti um, comes to the fore in bhava bhakti, then it becomes more apparent, as it does in the later stages of sadhana also. Hmm? That, the, that the emotion is driving the action. Hmm? Before emotion, then we do action. But the action we're doing, of course, hearing, chanting, in other words, bhakti is coming first on the senses. Hmm? Then it moves into the mind. Hmm? When it takes over the senses, and we have good guidance, for example, in a a, a good situation, we can be fully engaged with our senses. Hmm? And we can stop thinking. Hmm? And then there's possibility for bhakti to take over the mind. And when it takes over the senses and the mind, then it will take over the atma. Hmm? And that atma becomes one with Bhagwan in the context of love. As as the Swarup Shakti is one. Hmm? It's his own Swarup Shakti. It's it's inherent in him. Hmm? It comes outside as Bhakti Devi, as Radha and is shared that we might have that kind of dynamic unity and love. But it's, it's all uh, descending. So the idea is you put yourself in a situation where your senses can be fully engaged. Hmm. Hmm. Think about it. Think freely about it. What's being said here? Make a decision. Hmm. This, make, this, 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 this has great prospect. This offers great prospect. It's very exciting. Hmm. And... Without this, I could think and swirl around about, like the moon, what I could be. Here it's saying you're a derived entity. Hmm? It sounds un- a little unbecoming in our democratic you know, societies and so forth. You're a derived entity. Hmm? But uh, we think, again, to the example of the moon I gave earlier. This is his beauty. Hmm? Yeah? Then it can really shine and uh, and and give light and feeling to others and be appreciated and so forth. Hmm? So if we choose to take the bhakti, then we should take the bhakti. Hmm? And to help us choose to hear these ideas hmm, from so many different angles. Hmm? And we get ourselves in a position where our senses can be fully engaged with the thoughtfulness of why I'm doing that. The mind will be taken over. Then the Atma will be taken over. That's how it works. And Bhakti it really is doing us. It's descending and it is the nourishing influence that nourishes you in such a way that you have an identity that in Bhakti you have an identity 
as we discussed before, with, with desires. Some coward boys like mangoes, some like coconuts. The differences. Different desires. All of them pleasing to Bhagwan. Hmm? Because they're all arising in the context of the within the parameters of the Sarup Shakti that is that is an environment created or existing only for the pleasure of Bhagawan. Only for the pleasure. Like following him like a shadow, whatever he wants, pleasing. Hmm? And from the Baid perspective, the non-different perspective in Golok, we are all just instruments through which Bhagawan is, is playing himself out. He liked coconuts. He liked bananas. He liked oranges. <laughs> hmm? So different devotees are, are the instruments by which he's tasting. All. And from the Abed perspective, Abed? That's the, that's the Abed. From the Bade perspective, from the difference perspective, hmm? then each jiva's free will, unit of free will, is being fully facilitated by the Sarup Shakti. Hmm? And has full, so many choices, all in the context of the nourishing environment of the Sarup Shakti. So it's all pleasing to Bhagavan. It's not just automatons moving around, so to speak, but hmm? every friend of Krishna, every girlfriend, every boyfriend of Krishna, hmm? a complete uh, complete person, so to speak. Hmm? <coughs> so here Krishna is advocating this form of bhakti, raga bhakti, Buddha bhava samambita, Pujapachita Maharaj translated, raga bhava samambita. Hmm? Those who know that Krishna is Swayam Bhagavan, they have access to this path. This is one of the key points that has to be in place. Contemplating it, matva, understanding it properly, you have the samanda that will foster the activity that is rag bhakti and, of course, appropriately, according to your adhikar, how you will apply yourself in in, 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 in the, in the rag bhakti, which is the pursuit of the ideal of loving Krishna in intimacy. So, through majesty, hmm, the implication is we have opportunity to approach the Godhead in intimacy. Any question? Yes. Well, what it reminds me of when you ask that question is that Pujapad Sridharmarsh once told us that, oh, your Guru Marsh told you not to think. Hmm? And, and while not allowing you to think, then he in put, stored so many things in your heart hmm? to be drawn upon later in times like this, in his absence, hmm? that you might think and then be able to think in a way that was constructive for spiritual life. Hmm? So, 
just let's use another example. If you want to, if you have a disease and you want to be cured, the first thing may be to fast. Hmm? And then there may be feeding of certain foods, hmm? right? Until you learn to eat in such a way that you don't get the disease that you got by not eating in a in a <coughs> in a uh, appropriate way or nutritious way. Hmm? So yes, there's a place for not thinking, and there's a place for thinking spiritually. Hmm? and wisely and in having a spiritualized kind of mind that, that, that makes you, that enables you to even draw things from the texts that others might, might not be able to. Hmm? Um, so the Maya Shakti influence, another way to think about it, the Maya Shakti inhibits the free will because it makes you like Maya, which doesn't have any will. If you associate karnam guna sangasyo sarasad yoni yanmashu, so it's the same as the principle applies throughout. If you who you associate with, you'll be like. If you associate with matter, if you come under the malnourishment of the material influence, then you become like matter, more or less. And matter is uh, not uh, is how you say inert, right? It doesn't have will. Hmm? So you, you basically become an, uh, more or less what some philosophers think we all are, automatons. You just, you know, just, to use the Gita's term, the modes are active only. Hmm? And the lights are on, but, but nobody's home. Something like that. Hmm? Um, but conversely, if you associate with the Sarup Shakti in Bhakti, then given that, yes, there's a period where just like you need in, in in disease. I said you might need to fast from a, from the influence of the Maya Shakti and all the you know disconnected thoughts that come there. Come there. The, the the mind free to just think whatever it wants and speculate and so forth. We'll never arrive at Krishna consciousness. Never arrive at at the at, at what we're talking about unto itself. Hmm? So so many thoughts round and round, so many ways to think about you take any social issue <coughs> in the society, you know, there's there's at least two sides to every argument and you know, depends who you're listening to that day, you know. Um so um um to forego that type of to 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 put a harness on the thinking, so to speak. There was a time in Western History, history of the Western world and the thinking in the Western world, where, where philosophy was a handmaiden to, to, to religion and theology, and then there was a point where theology was thrown out, and we were given the freedom it was thought just to think, whatever, rather than be constrained by revelation. Now, I would look at the Eastern, the Western revelation, to be, from my own perspective, a little limited, in comparison to the Eastern revelation. Hmm? That's why I'm a Hindu, <laughs> um, um, and I and I, I think there's a lot of thinking that can be done in the context of being tied to revelation as a guiding principle as to what life is about, what its meaning is, and so forth. But freed from any revelation, just to think unto yourself, well, that's what we have in the world today, hmm? and. Um, you know, it's just a constant quest of how to figure things out and be happy and, you know, and as the Pope said, it's God's become the money, so 
uh, it's a problem. I mean, that's never going to satisfy people. So thinking, philosophizing, if you will, unhinged from revelation, that's Western society. Uh, it's Eastern society too now. So it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's problematic. It really is. I mean, if everybody in the world believed that mukti of some sort hmm, was the goal of life, including prem as a, as a type of mukti, hmm, and that there was reincarnation, I mean, how much would the world change morally, ethically? I mean, just those two points would, would really... Of course, you know, you do have devotees that believe that and fight with one another still, but, but I mean, to, <coughs> so some of that would be there, but to understand the implications of those points. This was a guiding post, so to speak. Basically, okay, everybody agrees, we're atmas and, and the goal of life is to transcend. These are just small points, but would dramatically change the whole society. There's a lot of freedom to think within that also. There's a freedom to think. Advaita Vedanta, you know, uh, whatever, Buddhism or uh, uh, Vaidhi Bhakti, Rag Bhakti, and these are just some general ideas, but there's so much freedom to think within that. Hmm? But it's hinged, tied to something that uh, ontological truths that, that, that don't change, and it orbits around that. So, so in in, in our school, in in, uh, in all schools of of Vedanta, properly understood, <coughs> yes, there's a not thinking. In an unhinged way, which is which is also a kind of a, an illusion. I mean, it's really not unhinged. In other words, we're all under influences. There's this thing called the, what they call it now, the bubble factor or something. Bubble factor in, on the internet. Google is taking away your minds. Is the is the theory because they they know how you think. You know, they see what you go after, and then you're only fed certain information. Those are the ads that come up and the, the, the searches that come up relative to how much they know about your thinking and then your thinking is it's the last place to go for free thinking, in other words. And that's where everybody is talking about free thinking. Um, so, so to, anyway, so yeah, there's, there's room for free thought. Hmm? A lot of it. Hmm? Um, even when thought is hinged and philosophy is hinged to to revelation, tied to it. Hmm? That's what we call theology, really. Hmm? Um, in a sense. Thinking that's tied to, to revelation. Here we, we speak of the Eastern revelation. Does that help? Yeah. What else? Okay. Yes. I would like to ask about the tenth and eleven chapters and whether we have it to talk about. Eu 
całkowicie odłożył sobie Arkinie w 10 rozdziale, w 11 w pewnym sensie wszystko pokazał, w dużej mierze przynajmniej. On the one hand, Krishna said so many things to Arjuna in the 10 Chapter, uh, and uh, and he showed, he is showing so many things on the other hand. And he showed, he actually demonstrated what he was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So in the 10th chapter, so he accepted what Krishna said, but only in the 11th chapter did he uh, uh, manifest all the symptoms that were related to his understanding. So, does Krishna see that actually, um, although Arjuna says he understands it, he doesn't feel it? So, for that reason, later on in the 11th chapter, he, he shows him, says Arjuna, uh, this, uh, you know, what, he, what he sees, because no one can just see it uh, and, and say that he understands it. Co prawda, Prabhupada tak ogólnie pisze, że to jest jakby na, na korzyści niezwykłych historii, żeby mogli zobaczyć, ale jednocześnie sam Prabhupada na początku, początku też o tym pisze, a pod koniec tego rozdziału nas tego bardzo tak wyraźnie jest powiedziane, że właśnie zwykła, że Prabhupada nie jest w stanie zobaczyć tego, co, co Krishna pokazuje. Więc jakby Maharaj może to wszystko. So, The fact that it was shown in this way is for the benefit of the living entities. But uh, concluding in chapter 11, in his commentary, he says that, uh, at the beginning of his uh, commentary, uh, he says that it's not possible for every living entity to experience something like this. Could you expand on this? Is my understanding correct? Kind of. It's not clear what the question is, but uh, but I mean, in the tenth chapter, Krishna speaks about something that he shows Arjuna in the, in the, in the, in, the, in the in the eleventh chapter, and the reason that he shows it to Arjuna is uh, somewhat um, based on the, just the kind of the curiosity that has been perked within Arjuna by Krishna. Speaking the way he is, it said the curiosity killed the cat. So uh, the curiosity of Arjun was met with a theophany that was very extraordinary and freaked him out, to be honest with you. Um, but in the context of doing that, then it could be brought out that the, the two-armed form of Krishna was more was superior because of its sweetness to the majestic form in which the universe was, was contained. So um, Arjuna's curiosity was very, uh, very fruitful, and I would say, I, I suppose it's an instrument, the showing of the universal form was an instrument 
employed by Krishna to to demonstrate the superiority of his personal form to you know uh, readers of the Gita. I don't know if I've really answered your question, but but I don't know what your question was. So, <laughs> but I, I don't mean to offend you in any way. But uh, <laughs> but uh, something like that. What else? I guess it's a little late now. What time is it? What time? Yeah. So we we have we just discuss in the evening a little lighter. You know, it's a little heavy philosophy here. Uh, questions and answers, so you can save your questions for then, and and uh, we can talk about anything, anything you like. It'll be on your, you know, your time, uh, and we'll uh, try to respond accordingly. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna. Shigornatananda ki jai, Guru Vaishnav Guru Paramparaki jai, Gaur Bhakti Brinda ki jai, Gaur Premanandi.